0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I am your host, Karen Litzy. I want to thank you all for joining me. And in the next couple of months, I'm going to be interviewing a lot of different, uh, some PTs, some not PTs, who are going to be involved in the San Diego Pain Summit, which takes place February 20th to the 22nd in, you guessed it, San Diego. Um, and to learn more about this, you can go to SanDiegoPainSummit.com, all one word. And FYI, the early bird special, so if you want to save money on your registration, ends September 1st. So you have basically one week to head on over to SanDiegoPainSummit.com and sign up for, uh, to pay less money. Um Okay, so like I said, there's, I think there's about, I feel like there's like 15 or 20 speakers. Um, Keynote speakers, Laura Mermosley, if you've never seen him speak live, um, this would probably be a great place to do it, more of an intimate setting. Um, And he, along with all the other speakers who you'll meet over the coming months through these uh, interviews, are... Uh, great people to learn from. So, if you have the chance and you want to be in San Diego in the middle of February when it's pretty much cold everywhere else in the country, I think it's a good uh, a good place to be. Okay, so today, want to be interviewing one of the speakers at the San Diego Pain Summit, and that is Barrett Dorco. He is a physical therapist, a clinician, and writer in Northeast Ohio. He graduated from the Ohio State University in 1973 has taught workshops on manual care throughout North America since 1976. He turned his attention to painful problems many years ago and now focuses his writing and practice on what neuroscience has taught us about such problems and what the role of the therapist might entail. Soon he'll travel to Norway and Brazil where he's been invited to teach the method of simple contact and discuss his understanding of painful problems. So, Barrett, uh, welcome back to the show and thanks for coming on.
1: Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Karen.
0: Okay, so uh, basically, like I said, I'm going to be uh, interviewing a lot of the different speakers and we want to give the listeners a taste of what your larger uh, talk will be about at the San Diego Pain Summit. So you're going to be talking about Simple Contact so, the first question I have for you is, can you give us a brief overview of what simple contact is and where it came, what, what it came out of?
1: Yes, I'd be glad to. Uh, I've been speaking about this for so many years, the, uh, this story might actually be true. The uh, fact is, I came up with the term simple contact after having read a book by Charles Brooks called Sensory Awareness and uh, this was not a physical therapist, but someone who talked about uh, thoughtful handling, uh, both of animate and inanimate, inanimate objects. I realized that uh, this is something I had pursued, thought uh, carefully and, and persistently for several years in my private practice here in Ohio. The, the fact is that uh, as I came to understand more about instinctive motion in the patient, I found uh, via palpation, an observation that people were constantly in motion, and uh, although this motion had not been identified specifically uh, in my training, I came across some literature in uh, the 90s uh, regarding uh, what is referred to as ideal motion This is one of the three ways that we move uh, non-consciously. Idiomotion expresses us, and clearly, it makes us comfortable. I felt that if I simply handled people in a fashion that uh, enhanced their tendency to move instinctively toward correction, and that is to say a reduction in mechanical deformation and thus an increase in blood flow to their nervous tissue, this would quite commonly be a uh, way of helping them uh, uh, find ways of moving that reduce their mechanical deformation and thus relieve their pain. Uh, I've combined simple contact as my reading, Uh, has taught me to uh, not only include the method, but to to include a specific understanding as it grows in the neurosciences about what the skin possesses, uh, what the brain can do, what uh, massive amounts of uh, change in the patient context might make, and thus have uh, produced a uh, personal persona that allows me to be therapeutic and to take that therapy wherever I happen to be. This isn't always encouraged by the rest of my profession, but it's something that I've got with me. Does that help a bit?
0: Yes, absolutely. And now when you talk about idiomotion, um, as an exam- would an example be is, let's say you've been sitting for a long time and you don't even realize it, but perhaps you've shifted your weight to one side, or you put a leg underneath you, kind of doing uh, motions that you don't really realize you're doing?
1: Without plan or willful intent, it's referred to as without volition. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. So, how does that tie into simple contact and what you do as a therapist with your patient? Because I think there's um, a lot of people think in physical therapy that you're sort of showing people different movement patterns and how to move better, so more of a learned behavior versus what the patient already has in them. So what's the the difference?
1: Uh, The difference is that word learned and uh, in the word proper. uh, The best way to do something, the proper way to do something has really diminished in my estimation. I know what looks good. I know what good hair looks like. (laughs) Uh, This is fashionable. However, what we do instinctively and what we do fashionably is uh, really quite different. We of course cannot simply express our instincts whenever they arise. There would be chaos, there sure, would be sure. anarchy. However, in order to reduce pain, we should be given the opportunity on a regular basis and in the presence of a therapist initially to recognize what we're doing culturally and uh, what we might do that is quite countercultural. I I often say that the easiest person to treat is the artist because the artist performing an act of courage creatively following their own instinct to do something is uh, much more likely to be able to relate that to a kind of movement that is uh... both instinctive unplanned uh... you see this across the board in athletics uh... all of the arts and in certain people who have a tendency to be themselves which is a, a large phrase on the other hand i think quite commonly that we impose as therapists the idea that Ourself and the way we're supposed to appear, is uh, is interfering with that. It interferes with the with the fact that we should be ourselves. In that, not we should not necessarily slouch. On the other hand, if slouching reduces the mechanical deformation in our system, and if it's and of course it wouldn't be done constantly, then it's the thing we ought to do. Mm
0: -hmm. So, how would you, let's say give a home exercise program to a patient? So, because for instance we're sort of taught traditionally if someone has, I don't know, an impingement of their shoulder, let's say, um, a lot of times we're taught to give certain exercises for that patient, so where does the role of simple contact fall into that home exercise program or that practice for the patient?
1: My home exercise programs Uh, begin with uh, spontaneous motion. Uh, I'm not sure where the word spontaneous strikes me, but what I'm talking about is uh, finding a place where you're allowed to be yourself and allow yourself to move. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, I think that it's very important to make sure that people are regularly consciously doing motions that are uh, both painless and Mm -hmm. uh, approach the guided motor motor uh, imagery that uh, will be emphasized, I'm sure, at the San Diego program. Mm-hmm. Uh, this program uh, contains, uh, I count 11 speakers.
0: 11, okay.
1: Uh, eight of whom I've met personally and uh, regularly uh, participate on SomaSimple.com, <clears throat> which which, for my money, and, and there's no money involved here except the output of money from me, uh, is, is the best place to uh, bring ideas and have them discussed uh whether or not the other speakers know of this site or regularly participate is is something i cannot say but i'm anxious to meet them Mm -hmm. the the fact is that uh uh, when we ask someone to do a, a home program we're going to have to give them some kind of instruction and i i think it's very important to go ahead and follow the uh that particular dictate in my profession uh i have because of my personal experience in 1980 with uh, Moshe Feldenkrais, really glommed on to the ideas of uh, Feldenkrais when it came to uh, moving painlessly Uh and moving thoughtfully and not coming up with a goal so much as with a measure. I I regularly teach my patients uh, to measure various and sundry motions, to do something seemingly unrelated to that motion, and uh, then measure the motion again. And uh, if they do this thoughtfully, and if they follow the dictates that I I suggest, they'll be able to move further with less pain. Mm -hmm. I have got nothing against strengthening, but I don't think that there's a correlation between strength and pain. I've not seen it. And uh, those who say that uh, they have strengthened their patients and they felt better, uh, I think are making the the classic uh, post hoc hoc ergo propter hoc uh, fallacy in their head they're connecting one thing to another that is not to be connected this is a perfectly human thing to do we need to recognize
0: it Mm -hmm. and what so when you are working with the patient and, and you're applying simple contact I know you you've talked about the patient's instinctive movement so are you watching or evaluating the patient and maybe how do you evaluate that instinctive movement in order to add that into your treatment.
1: I talked to the patient about uh, being authentic coming out of attention which the uh, both the culture and the services have pushed us toward mainly in the adduction of the hips that is the bringing of the feet together and how although that looks good it's not necessarily healthy there's a tremendous amount of literature to back this up and the patients can feel the change in their sensation and their breathing as soon as they allow such a thing to uh, diminish. I wouldn't suggest to people that they constantly work authentically, but rather that they dose themselves with motions that they want to do and worry a little less than they would ordinarily at uh, what other people might think. I'll, I'll bring up the, uh, I tell stories, I bring up the subject of uh, finding a stone in your shoe if you're sitting at an opera. If you're even if you're seated at an opera where everyone's dressed up, including you, for good reason. Mm-hmm. If there's a stone in your shoe, you'll take the doggone thing out. If there's a stone bothering your torso in some way, you'll probably leave it there. This is this is evolutionary. This is a uh, the fact that our brain tells us our feet are far more important than our uh, mm-hmm. our ribs for for locomotion, and therefore. We can we can feel the distinction between doing something instinctively, no matter what the surroundings, and uh, waiting something out, and in in these stories, and I have many, uh, people begin to understand what it is I'm talking about. I think image and story precede and supersede just about everything we do. So I try to present uh, patients with stories, with which they might make an image. If I had my own office at the moment, I would, like I had in the past, uh, put images on the wall that uh, connected these things.
0: And, you know, I've taken the simple, simple Contact course, and I have found some of the evaluative tools to be especially helpful. Um, so aside from kind of looking at hip position, what... Let's say someone. Okay, let's say this. Let's say someone comes in with neck pain. Are you still going to look at their hip position?
1: Absolutely. Yes, because the all pain is neurogenic. You can take that to the bank. There's a tremendous amount of literature there, and if in fact approaching their neck uh, manually uh, or even verbally. Uh, can be felt as threatening to certain patients. This is something you find out as you work with the patient. So you work with the other end of their system. And since the nervous tissue is not only continuous uh, physically but uh, and mechanically, but also physiologically and uh, chemically, you can alter the way they feel in the neck by altering their hip and leg position. The only posture I've come to pay attention to is the patient's posture of the feet when they lie supine. This is, uh, I, I point out, is directly related to the, uh, the type of finding that a good poker player would look for in their opponent. Uh, are you familiar with this at all? I don't uh, think he's talking about it much.
0: Evaluate the position of the feet in supine? That-
1: yeah, but if a poker player is sitting at a table...
0: Oh, poker player, no.
1: Yeah, uh, if you're capable of seeing your opponent's feet, you can tell whether or not they want to run away from their cards or stand pat and you can appreciate the position of the feet. Uh, It is said by people who look at unconscious motivation, and there are many books on uh, poker out there that teaches this, that the feet are not connected to the head, that most people don't know about this so-called tell, and uh, they will reveal what they're thinking, uh, and you can see it. You can see it in the posture of their feet. This is why when people lie supine, they don't know what they're supposed to do with their feet either. They can uh, lie at attention, as, as some patients, many patients I've seen in the past, have been told to do, or they can abduct and externally rotate their hips. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, the uh, the involved side is more so internally rotated and abducted. Mm-hmm. Changing that does not threaten where they hurt, typically, and uh, does have the effect of reducing the mechanical deformation in the system. This was demonstrated uh, conclusively by Brieg in 1978. Uh, I'll talk to them about hammerlocks. Do you, do you, do you, Karen, do you know what a
0: hammerlock is? Um, does that have something to do with wrestling?
1: Uh, very commonly, uh, but...
0: I have uh, no I, idea.
1: I, I, I learned you see. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: have no idea about poker. I have no idea about wrestling. I mean, at you least you look- gave everyone listening a good in if they want to start gambling yeah. in Vegas.
1: Well, I'll tell you something. What you find out in poker is that uh, the poker face is just the easiest place to hide what you're thinking. Uh It's the rest of your body that reveals things. And uh, these things might not be revealed as an isotonic. uh, That is a a contraction of the muscle that induces joint motion, but they'll be uh, present as an isometric. Uh We're allowed to touch people. Uh, As therapists, in poker, there is no touching. You're familiar with that? Uh,
0: I would hope not. (laughs) I I can can honestly say I've never played a game of poker in my life.
1: It it doesn't matter. Uh, You know that you're not allowed to touch your opponent. Do you know why you're not allowed to touch your opponent?
0: I have no idea.
1: It would reveal too much. Mm. It would reveal all kinds of isometric activity that you could not see. Mm -hmm. Can you tell when another person is biting their tongue, so to speak?
0: No. No. I mean, unless you, if you, but if you were able to feel their jaw and feel around their face or their masseter, I guess, yeah, you would know.
1: Absolutely. So there's a tremendous amount of uh, of uh, pushback by the culture to hide the way we're thinking. Mm -hmm. But a good poker player will say, "I don't need to see your cards; I can see you." Mm -hmm. And that's what a good poker player works to do. They also work to hide their own sensations. If you're dealt four aces, you aren't supposed to say whoopee. Your right. opponent can't see them.
0: Right. You can't smile really big and go like yes, you have I'm to gonna pretend, win. Yeah.
1: Pretend you have to hide yourself. Uh recently I wrote about uh the two things that that uh, should be preserved. And this according to a book I, I heard about in uh if if you if you could only preserve two things of all knowledge the first would be the scientific method, which I, I hardly agree with, and the second would be the germ theory of disease. Pasteur demonstrated that things that were invisible actually could hurt us, Sure. and we didn't know that until then. This is why uh, people did not wash their hands before they dug into the patient. You're familiar with that.
0: I know. It's gross. I know. Well,
1: it's gross to us now. It's but gross
0: to us now, but then they just didn't know.
1: They didn't know. Yeah. And it took decades.
0: Yeah.
1: Decades to change this.
0: Yep.
1: Yep. Uh, and there's a story I can tell those in Ohio about uh, one of the eight presidents from Ohio, uh, Garfield, mm-hmm. who was uh, uh, his, his, uh, his assassin in 1881. Said, "I only shot him. The doctors killed him." And this is because the doctors had dug around looking for the the bullet, the bullet with dirty hands. Mm-hmm. That was in eighteen eighty-one. That wasn't that long ago. Right. But but Pasteur had demonstrated prior to that the you know, the presence of the invisible. I I often say that magicians have uh, depended upon our uh, uh, inability to. St- that which is invisible, which is what makes it invisible, uh, quite common. And and, and uh, they depend upon this so, and, and, and shouldn't therapists, it seems to me, have uh, an impression, have an idea about what's going on in the patient that uh, they cannot see. And this is where instinct comes to play. We cannot see what the instincts of another are, but there are three ways we move instinctively, non consciously we're born moving them, uh born with these motions mm-hmm. that uh that we uh uh cannot see except in their manifestation. Breathing and swallowing, we're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh startle reaction in response to threat, which we're familiar with and which mm-hmm. we can suppress certainly.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure.
1: And uh, the third is ideomotion. Now that was first described in eighteen fifty two. Why it hasn't been a big part of uh therapy for pain relief remains a mystery to me but i think we need to bring it to the fore there are manifestations of this particular type of motion in its relation to what the culture expects us to do all around us and like water to a fish we don't see them we don't understand how important they are but they're extremely important
0: and so in the context of treating a patient Um, again, let's take that patient that has a shoulder impingement, shoulder pain. We'll just say shoulder pain for lack of, uh, for simplicity's sake, let's just say shoulder pain. So if, you know, a lot of times we'll ask the patient, you know, are there any movements that make you feel better, that make you feel worse? And if there are movements that they say they, they just find themselves doing that make them better, should we then cling on to these movements and start having the patient move more with these movements versus having them perhaps do exercises where they say, oh, it's discomfort, I feel a little bit of pain, um, and saying, well, just try and work through it.
1: I, I Does think that make any sense? Well, not to me. Uh, to me... I mean,
0: not, I mean so I are we better, better off... Rather than
1: talk about uh, choreographing emotion for a patient, you should talk to a patient about whether or not they're doing something consciously or unconsciously.
0: Right, right, right. And, then, and then that is totally that.
1: different than giving a patient an exercise to do that they should simply work through the pain with. Right. I I don't understand that. I think if they're moving unconsciously and it's painful, but it will be painful briefly. That is okay. Uh-huh. If they're uh-huh. doing something choreographed that is painful, that is troublesome.
0: Yeah.
1: It's yeah. troublesome to me. On the other hand, the nature of pain. I've recently had a Facebook discussion on this. Does is that correlated with injury? No. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. As, uh, yeah. Well, you can't just say no. You yeah, have to not say necessarily. not necessarily. Sometimes they go hand in hand. Sometimes they don't. Depends yeah. upon the context. I, I, I'll point to Kevin Ware. You're familiar with yeah. that name? Sure. Well, y- you say sure. <laughs> and and I, a lot of people don't know his name, but this is the fellow in the semifinals of the uh, final four in in uh, March of thirteen.
0: Yeah, last no, year. Last year.
1: Did he hurt? No. And you would know that if uh, you'd read his quotes. Most people did not. They'll say, "Well, I, I hope so," and I, I find this a fascinating thing. He he claimed repeatedly that he did not hurt. Why? And then we begin. Yeah. And wow. it, he didn't hurt because the brain, I presume, as an output of pain, and pain's always an output from the brain, decided with this context you will not hurt. You're not going to stand up and walk around, but you're also not going to hurt.
0: Okay.
1: He, you know when he started to to realize he was in big trouble?
0: When he saw the faces of, of his teammates.
1: You're exactly right, and uh, that varies as well on my blog post. Uh, I, I show a video of the uh, reaction of his teammates That's to horrifying. his...
0: It's horrifying.
1: Not for the middle guy?
0: No, not, not for him, but for his and, teammates, I think, were horrified. You could see the look of, on their uh, face of...
1: No, no, the guy in the middle, there were three guys on either side of him. There uh-huh. were seven teammates on. The guy in the middle was a therapist. He, I, and I say that in a generic sense. He became a therapist because he had hurt himself so badly the right. year before. So, he, ran, he knew how important it was to get to him. He did not turn away. And and I find this particular detail fascinating, that this man's experience in life taught him how culturally important it was to get to his friend uh-huh. and not to turn away. Uh, this is, to me, what therapists should do. They should not turn away. They should turn toward the patient. It, it's It's hard, especially hard for me, it seems, to turn toward my colleagues. But I turn toward patients. And that's what they want, anyways, and that's that's fine with
0: me. Sure, sure. Well, it's it's the same idea of when, you know, I have a young niece who's five years old, and it's the same thing that I think my sister does. So she is running, she falls, you know. It, there's she would have more of a negative reaction to the fall if we were all like, oh my gosh, oh are you okay? What happened? What happened? What versus you know obviously checking to make sure nothing's, you know, very wrong with her, but yeah, just come on, get up, let's keep moving. Because it's usually, what's interesting is, and I saw this again, I was on vacation um, at the beach, and a friend of mine was there with her five kids. Yeah, five, all under the age of seven. Um, and the what it, three or, I think the three-year-old fell... And cut her leg and she was bleeding she was walking she had no seemingly fine had no idea it wasn't until she looked down saw the blood and all of a sudden erupted into tears yes and and it hurt whereas before she had no idea that anything had even happened so it wasn't until she sort of looked at it and I think maybe saw other people's reactions of whoa you're you know that face of my gosh you're bleeding but before that, she was walk, She was running back from, from the water.
1: There are so many inputs. And we have very little hope of knowing which one is the greatest in the patient or yeah, how yeah. they might change from second to second. But as therapists, we need to understand what all the impulse puts might be. Mm-hmm. And, uh-huh. and clearly, you have understood that this is a complex phenomenon. And, uh, good and you know, I wrote this the other day in, in the movie North Dallas 40, uh, the one coach is bringing the player. You have to figure out the difference between pain and injury. Well, I haven't figured out that. What it, how is a player in the NFL supposed to know yeah. the difference? We still don't know what the difference yeah. is. Uh, what we do know, however, is that pain is an output from the brain. And that means, in uh, response to the San Diego course, people must be taught not only that, and that can be done quickly, Mm -hmm. but a practical aspect of how to be with their patient in such a fashion as to reduce the inputs. Don't threaten your patient, blah, blah, blah. I talk about all these things, and and I try to live them in my office. I see when they're not lived with, and I've learned in my my travels uh, that silence is often my friend. And, you
0: know, I think... What you just said is is very important, and it's how the patient, or I'm sorry, how we as therapists can interact with our patient to help reduce some of these inputs into the patient's system. Absolutely. And Laura Mermosley speaking at the San Diego Pain Summit, I saw him speak a couple of years ago in Portland, Oregon with Paul Hodges, and he took a very, very long time to go over this sort of input-output circle. And I, and the inputs that go in, the outputs that come out, one of which may be pain, and then that pain then becomes an input. Or, you know, X, X Y, and Z happens to you, sweaty palms happen, that's an output, then that output becomes an input. And it just kind of keeps circling around. And we as therapists have to in speaking with the patient and watching the patient move have to kind of find a way in that we can meet the patient where they're at and help to reduce some of those inputs for them because we don't know maybe what input is going to help to relieve the pain because there's so many
1: I I wouldn't disagree at all I think you're exactly right it would be nice
0: Mm -hmm. uh, in an ideal uh, world
1: it is just the the type of world I certainly do not work in. I'm, I'm not sure of yours, but uh, so many people are threatening the patient uh, that they're glad to see me when I come in because I'm not threatening, and I, I've manipulated that to the to the degree that I can. I do not threaten people. This is extremely important, and I've got several stories about that uh, where Lorimer uh, might spend a lot of time talking about input and output. I'm I much prefer to tell a story and have people wonder about it. But in, in my experience in the past, not these days, uh certainly not in San Diego, the people who were there, uh who were there when I when I taught with other large corporations were there mainly for the donuts and to, to get a day off uh-huh. from their god awful jobs. Uh-huh. Now I know what that job, why you'd want to get away from it, but uh I look forward so much to going to San Diego and meeting people who actually want to be there and to meeting some of these uh, people whom I only know uh, by name. I, I just I can't wait.
0: Yeah to- and, and I think you know to, to that end I think it'll be a great conference and um, is there, so we're sort of short on time at this point but I think that you definitely gave the listeners a lot to think about and a good taste of what you're going to be talking about at the San Diego Pain Summit and again that's SanDiegoPainSummit.com February 20th to the 22nd in San Diego Um, so any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave people with and they can catch up with you in February
1: certainly I I really hope people prepare for this by uh, reading and uh, thinking about what it is they might ask uh, I hope that they, they pay attention to the way the speakers tend to exist. And this is how we came to be speakers at this uh, conference. Rajam who is a licensed massage therapist, uh, putting this together, was my hostess uh, when I went out to uh, San Diego last year. And on, uh, a more accommodating person you couldn't possibly imagine. She is done a tremendous amount of work on this Mm -hmm. and will do a great deal more and I I very much appreciate that. When you come to this, I think you'll be coming to the inaugural event uh, that uh, might just change the way therapists understand and thus approach patients. I certainly hope so. That's one reason I'm putting so much work into it.
0: Well, and I I think that uh, you've definitely Made a good case for people to go out to San Diego for more than just the weather in February.
1: Oh yeah, the weather. Well, people, you know, you know, people on the weather. I, yeah. I did not to pay attention to too much of that. Yeah. I, I hope it hasn't. I'm not snowed in in Cleveland, but we will see.
0: Well, hopefully not. Um, so, thanks so much for coming coming on the show today. And if people want to find out more about you, where can they do
1: that? Uh, com is my website. Uh, the contact. Uh, numbers for the people uh, hosting my co- uh, courses in uh, this country in uh, Houston and uh, uh, Baltimore, Maryland this year are there, as well as my courses in uh, Norway and Brazil. com is where I write a daily blog now and regularly participate in many kinds of discussion, and I just think it's a wonderful place.
0: All right, and. So, everyone, hopefully you can, if you're listening, make it to San Diego in February. And, again, if you want to uh, get in touch with me, you can do so through my website at KarenLitzy.com or via Twitter at KarenLitzyNYC. Uh, Barrett, thank you so much for coming on. And, everyone, thanks for listening and have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.